Um, in our class, we've been going through the life of Paul, and things have been really fun for me to study. We're at the point right now where they're not so fun for me to study. It reminds me of when I was in high school, I decided I was, I was in my C.S. Lewis reading phase, and I decided to read the, the screw tape letters. And those are letters written from uh, one demon to his nephew, another demon, about how to trick and trap uh, uh, the Christian in his uh, charge. And I decided I'd just read one or two of those letters a day. And after about two weeks of it, I was just down. And I realized it's because I'm reading all this demonology every day. You know, I'm reading every day this demon and how he's going to... And it was really difficult for me to work my way through that book. We're reaching a point in Paul's life that's difficult for me to work my way through. Because as weird as it may sound... We are talking, after all, about a biblical figure that I've never met. I've really grown to love this man as we've studied him and I've studied him in my life. And we're reaching days that are much darker. And it's, uh, it's an interesting study. I also find this an interesting study today from the perspective of being a lawyer. Because when push comes to shove, that is my day job. And there are all kinds of lawyers. There are lawyers who draw up wills and, and trusts. And, and I've got Mike over here who's incredibly proficient at that. If you want me to draw you up a will, you're basically inviting malpractice. I wouldn't have a clue what to do. Okay? I'd say, go see Mike. All right? Um, if you were to ask me to form a corporation for you, I would not have a clue how to do it. But if you need someone to stand up in court and argue a case, now you're getting into my arena. Okay? Or, or, or if, if uh, you want someone who's really been around the block, you're getting into Mike's arena. Where's Mike? I don't know if Mike would go with me on this one. Mike Moriarty or Mike Riddle or any other lawyers that I've got out there. But one thing that I have noticed as a lawyer is the defendant always wants his freedom. Any time a witness has a cause of, of uh, a fight in the courtroom, and I don't do much criminal law. Most of mine is, is civil. But any time you see a criminal, take the oath. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And actually sit in that stand and testify. By and large, 99.9% .9 of the time they're doing it for one reason and one reason alone. They want to get off. Maybe they're innocent, maybe they're guilty. Regardless, they want to get off or they would not be testifying in the first place. Make sense? Okay. It was different with Paul. We're going to cover Paul's arrest today. and We're going to be looking today and next week at his defenses that he sets out. And what strikes me as odd as a lawyer as I look at it is when Paul takes the oath, Paul wants the gospel proclaimed. That's what Paul's after. <laughs> Paul's not trying to get off. Paul's not trying to get freedom. Paul just wants anybody out there listening to come to Jesus. And it makes for a very different presentation than he might have done otherwise.
Now, last week, we left Paul in Caesarea. I have Caesarea. Caesarea. I'm so sorry I can't pronounce it. (laughs) A good Roman Latin would have pronounced it Caesarea. It's after Caesar, so if you want to do Caesarea, or, it doesn't matter. But I can tell you this, it's 62 miles from the port to Jerusalem, roughly the same as from here to uh, the bridge going over into Galveston. And Paul and Luke and the crew there, after spending a week with Philip the Evangelist in Caesarea, head on up to Jerusalem. Now, up. They weren't going north to Jerusalem, but we say they went up because Jerusalem's up on a hill. So you always go up to Jerusalem, okay? Biblically. They go up to Jerusalem. And when they arrive in Jerusalem, ah, there they are. That's going up to Jerusalem. When they arrive in Jerusalem, they stay with a fellow named Manasseh. Have you ever heard of Manasseh? That's because he exists nowhere in the Bible or church history except this one place. He took care of Paul and Luke and the crew. That's where they stayed. I didn't put it in the written lesson, but I put it in this morning as I was doing my slides because it just struck me again that we're not being fair to old Manasseh. Paul... The apostle writes 13 books of the New Testament. Luke, the physician, writes the history of the church and the gospel account with these other guys. And they stayed with Manasseh. And I think it's kind of Luke's tip of the hat to him that Luke puts his name in here for eternity in God's word. And I just thought, you know, Jesus said, be hospitable. Y'all take in so many students. Be hospitable because you never know. You might even have an angel that you're taking care of. But, um, and Paul certainly was a man with a message, if not an angel. So Paul and the team stay with Masson. From there, the very next morning, they meet with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Now, it's very interesting, and I want to highlight this. If we go back to Acts chapter 15, in Acts chapter 15, Paul went to Jerusalem and met with the leaders. And Luke records that the apostles and the elders were gathered together. And after they finished speaking, James replied. Very interesting after the sermon today to look at James' reply. James' reply was, let's just write a letter telling them, do this, do this, do this, and don't do that. James was always the pragmatist. So James uh, uh, and the elders and the apostles all meet with Paul. And they sort through the issue of how to deal with Gentiles that are coming to Christ and whether they need to be Jews. But in this occurrence, which is over a decade later, time has passed. Paul's come back to Jerusalem. And look who he meets with. Paul went in with us, that's Luke and his crew, to James, and all the elders were present. Who's missing? 
The apostles. Where are the apostles for this big meeting? Where are the apostles? They're not there. Do we know why? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us directly why. It tells us indirectly why. Church history tells us a little bit more. But we can't pass this up. We should not think the apostles were ignoring Brother Paul. The apostles are not mentioned there because Jesus had told them something right before he ascended to heaven. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Remember? We call it the Great Commission. But it was a specific commission to those apostles. Jesus told them to go. And they did. History shows us this. One of the writings of history that I've pulled out for the empty chair is The Preaching of Peter. That was a book that was written somewhere around 100 to 150 A.D. We don't have the book anymore. But it was written, say, 40 plus years after these events. We know about it because it's quoted by a fellow named Clement of Alexandria who's writing around 200 A.D. Clement of Alexandria quotes the following passage, among others, out of the book. He says, Peter says that the Lord said to the apostles, If anyone of Israel then wishes to repent and by name to believe in God, his sins shall be forgiven him. And after 12 years... Supposedly, Jesus said to the apostles, after 12 years, go forth into the world so that no one may say we have not heard. There's another reference by Eusebius, a church historian who was writing around 250 A.D., who quoted the same tradition that after 12 years, the 12 apostles went forth into the world to preach. Now, we don't know if Jesus said this because we don't have scripture to back it up and and, and we look at the Bible as inerrant, but we don't look at history books that way. But whether it was Jesus that said it, or just a tradition that grew up around the occurrence, is irrelevant. What's important here is that we see that tradition shows the apostles followed Jesus' command that we do know. Namely, go out into the world and preach the gospel. And they did that. So they were gone, leaving James, the brother of Jesus, in charge of the church in Jerusalem. And that's the James that with the elders who were in charge of the church, Paul appeared before. So now, Paul goes before James and the elders and he gives a full report of all that God had been doing in front of the Gentiles and out in the world. He gives his mission right up. And there's much rejoicing when we consider what Pastor Fleming was talking about this morning Pastor Fleming was discussing uh, do some people think there's a contradiction between James when it comes to issues of salvation and Paul we need to remember that James and Paul got along famously we know about it from Acts when Paul, who at this point in time has been out evangelizing three mission trips in the Gentile field, Paul's written his Galatian letter. Paul's written his letters, first and second Corinthians. He's written his letters to the Thessalonians. He's written the treatise we call Romans. Paul's written these things. Paul sits down 
tells James everything's going on. And they're in full accord. They're rejoicing. This is not the situation where there's a frustration over the theology or what's been being taught. I would add one thing to what's been discussed this morning. One other idea that, that uh, Pastor Fleming did not have time to get to in his sermon. If I wanted to tell you it's freezing outside. And I could show you that picture. Better yet, let me, let me add to it. I've got a thermometer that shows it at 100 degrees. And I've got people sweating bullets out in the desert. But I'm here to tell you. It's freezing cold out there. Better put on your winter coat. I can say all day long it's freezing cold. But if it's not, and we can tell it's not by looking at the thermometer and looking at the people and watching the sweat drip down their face, what we see tells us something different than what I might say. Does that make sense? And that's the point James was driving at. When James says... I will, uh, you know, show me your faith. You know, Lewis, show me your faith. Now, I don't want you to use any reference to works. You can't show me anything you're doing. can't show me any deeds. can't show me any works. Just show me in your heart that you believe. How is Lewis ever going to show me his faith? God sees upon the heart, but do we? No. God can see Lewis's heart. God doesn't have trouble determining whether or not Lewis has faith. But if I want to see if Lewis has faith, the only way I know is to look at what he's doing. I can watch what he does and I can say, Jesus makes a difference in his life. And that's why James, I believe, says, you see. That a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. James is not saying you see in the sense that we in the 21st century or the 20th century say, well, you see. No, he's saying visually your eyes see a man's justification not simply by faith. Because you can't see faith. So you see it by works even though the justification is by faith. Does that make sense? If you want to see if it's freezing outside or not, you look at a thermometer and it can tell you. But you can't just know it by just conceiving it. I don't know if that helps or not. But I can tell you when Paul sat down with James and the elders of the church and Paul gave his testimony of what God had done, there was much rejoicing. And they glorified God. And James the pragmatist said, Okay, there's a bad rumor circulating about you, Paul, among the Messianic Christians, among the believing Jews who believe in Jesus, among the, our brothers and sisters in the church. There's a bad rumor circulating. Here's the rumor. The rumor is that you, Paul, have been out in the world 
telling Jews they don't have to circumcise their kids, boys, telling Jews to ignore Moses and trample on his law. And Paul, we're so glad to hear what you're preaching because it's consistent with what we believe. But we need to stop the rumors that you have absolutely no regard. And those are rumors. Paul never told Jews not to circumcise their sons. Paul always said that your salvation is not based on this. And if you think you're basing your salvation on some act of circumcision, then you might as well try and follow the whole law perfectly because you can't make it by your works. Paul said that. But Paul never said, so quit working. It's like Pastor Fleming said today. He quoted the Ephesians 2.10 passage. Ephesians 2.8-9, By grace you've been saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. But Ephesians 2.10, We are his workmanship. We're created in Christ for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. Paul's never been ignoring that. So, it was a bad rumor. What's to be done about it? Again, James, the pragmatist. James is always, well, just bomb, 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 bomb. Well, write a letter. You read the letter of James. It's called sometimes the Proverbs of the New Testament because it's just very pragmatic. It's bomb, 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 bomb. It's not deeply theological. It's just very practical. Now watch what you do with your tongue. Your tongue gets you in so much trouble. It's like the rudder of a ship. Where it turns, you turn. It can change the course of the world. So just watch what you say. And he's just real practical in that way. That's why David's titled this sermon series on James, just real life. Because that's what James is. It's just real practical advice. So James, the pragmatist, says, what are we going to do about this? Aha! I have an idea. We have four guys who need a haircut. We'll use them to show that the rumor is false. You see, there were these four men, four members of the church there, who had taken a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow is found in Numbers chapter 6. And you take it for a certain period of time. If you never specified how long it was for, it was deemed to be for 30 days. But for those 30 days, or however long you take it, no haircuts. No wine or strong drink or even grape juice. Don't even touch a grape. (laughs) It's not don't get drunk. It's not don't drink. It's stay far, far away from that stuff as a vow to God. And then the third thing is don't come in contact with anybody who's dead. Now, you, you know, people died all the time then and so... Sometimes you did, and you'd have to be purified from it. But this is the vow. So the theory that James had for Paul was, we've got these four guys that have been under this Nazarite vow that need a haircut, and here's what happens. After their time is up, be it 30 days or whatever, but their time's almost up, go to the temple with them and pay for their purification. See, the guys would go to the temple at the end of the Nazarite vow and they would go through this purification rite. Part of it included 
going inside the court. It's called the court of the women. It's where the Jewish women were allowed. You go inside the court of the women, and there were barbers there set up to take your money and cut your hair so that it could be offered. And the, James said, if you'll just go with these guys and help, pay, and, and help them go through and then pay for their purification, everybody's going to say, oh, clearly Paul is continuing to honor the traditions of his father and his grandfather and father Moses and, and on and on. And so Paul does so. The results, however, are not quite what everyone had hoped for. Oh, Paul doesn't have any trouble with the church understanding where Paul stands on things, which was the ultimate goal. But if we look at a reconstruction of the temple, the temple had this huge outer court area that was called the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were allowed in that part. That's where the money changers were. That's where, uh, uh, so Gentiles, you know, might need to go there for a little ATM action. The currency exchange. It's where you could buy and sell animals. When Jesus uh, goes in and overturns the temples of the money changers, that's in the court of the Gentiles. It's where all that stuff's going on. But if you notice, and this picture's not great, but you see the big center building area inside with its own little walls like a little castle fortress? There are stairs that go up to that. And in the courtyard of that area is the court of women. Gentiles are not allowed in there. In fact, as we read the gospel of Luke, or, or the history of Luke in Acts, we see Luke specifically saying, the problem is Paul was accused of bringing Gentiles with him into that area of the temple where Gentiles were not allowed. And it really, really angered the mobs and the people, the religious Jews. Because when Paul brings Gentiles beyond the area where the Gentiles are allowed, Paul defiles the temple, makes it unclean. That was the perception. Now, it's interesting the way archaeology has plugged into this. In the late 1800s, this archaeologist discovered the plate that I put up there, it was a stone inscription. They've since uh, uh, discovered a second one as well. And um, I've tried to put the Greek out there. So those of you who have this uh, funny little interest in matching up letters can do it. So that's in your written handout. But let me give you the English translation of what was discovered on this stone. In Greek it reads, No outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary. Let's go back. That's that enclosure around the center area. No one shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary who's ever caught will only have himself to blame for the ensuing death. This is up on a number of places all around the stairs. In other words, you're not Jewish. You come inside here, you die. And it's interesting, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, tells us that... This is uh, 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 something that, that the Romans had approved of. We can read in Josephus. Josephus is writing about Titus, who's going to become a, an emperor of Rome, but at the time is the Roman general in charge of conquering Jerusalem and quelling the, the Israeli uprising, the Jewish uprising in the 70s, late 60s and 70s. 
Now Titus was deeply affected with this state of things and reproached John and his party and said, Have not you, vile wretches that you are, by our permission, put up this partition wall before your sanctuary? Have you not been allowed to put up the pillars, that's the columns, this stone tablet was on, the pillars thereto belonging at due distances and on it to engrave in Greek? And in your own letters. Evidently they had it in Hebrew as well. Or Aramaic. This prohibition that no foreigner should go beyond that wall. Have not we given you leave to kill such as go beyond it? Though he were even a Roman. Luke writes great history. And we found the plates. This is what Paul's accused of doing, and the accusation spreads like wildfire. All Jerusalem's all upset over it. And, 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 and everybody goes after Paul. A huge mob descends on Paul and basically is going to kill him on the spot, accusing Paul of bringing a Gentile into the area where he should not be brought. Well, a Roman tribune, a tribune is like higher up than the centurions. Centurions were over arguably 100 troops, but at this point in time it had been reduced to 80. Um, so a, a tribune gets a couple of centurions and their troops, so a couple of hundred people, and rescues Paul from the mob because Paul's about to be killed on the spot. The tribune rescues Paul and starts hauling Paul away. And Paul says to the tribune in Greek. Um, can, can I say something? And the tribune looks at him and says. You speak Greek? I thought you were that Egyptian guy. With the 4,000 people in the wilderness. Now. Luke doesn't give us many more details than this because he's not writing the history of the Egyptian guy with 4,000 people in the wilderness. He's writing the history of the church. But there was an Egyptian guy with 4,000 people in the wilderness who tried to take on Rome. And while the 4,000 people in the wilderness, by and large, were clobbered, the Egyptian guy snuck away and never got caught. How do I know this? Josephus. Here's the way Josephus writes it when he's writing the history of the Jewish people and their war. Josephus says, But there was an Egyptian false prophet that did the Jews more mischief than the former. This was another guy who was wicked. Because he was a cheat and pretended to be a prophet also and got together 30,000 men that were deluded by him. Some of you are saying, I thought it was four. It was four. These he led around the wilderness to the mount which is called the Mount of Olives and was ready to break into Jerusalem by force from that place and if he could but once conquer the Roman garrison and the people. He intended to dominate them by the assistance of those of his that were to break into the city with him. Felix prevented his attempt and met him with his Roman soldiers while all the people assisted him in his attack upon them insomuch that when it came to a battle, the Egyptian ran away with a few others, while the greatest part of those that were with him were either destroyed or taken alive. Now, you're saying, well, 
30,000 or 4,000? Who messed up? The answer? First of all, there's no way there were 40,000. I mean 30,000. It had to be four. Most scholars agree. But there's a real logical reason as to why Josephus messed up, bless his heart. You want to see how to write Greek for 4,000? Whoops. Delta. That's 4,000. Capital Delta. Capital D. Want to see Greek for 40,000? I mean 30,000, excuse me. Capital Lambda, L. So Josephus, you know, I mean, cut him some slack. He misread the line or something. I don't know. Maybe it was on a big chief tablet. But that's what we have, yeah. So we've got good history here. Paul says, no, I'm not the Egyptian guy with the 4,000 in the wilderness. That's not me. Now, can I please talk to the people? Tribune says, sure, I guess so. So Paul stands and he holds his hand out and the people get quiet. As Paul's standing on the steps about to address him. And then to the people, Paul starts talking in their native tongue, which would be Aramaic. It's a derivative of Hebrew. And Paul addresses the crowd in Aramaic. Now, this, the Tribune, bless his heart, doesn't understand Aramaic. So he's clueless as to what Paul's saying, as we see from later on in the story, when he still doesn't know what's going on. But Paul addresses the crowd. And when Paul does, he doesn't do it emphasizing Paul's Greek background. Paul's not, oh, I'm a big guy from Tarsus, and, and I can quote Greek poets, and all the other things we know about Paul and his Greek side of his personality and, and life. Instead, Paul underscores his Hebrew credentials. says, you know, I came to this city at a young age. I studied at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most respected rabbis. I persecuted the way. I was one of the biggest persecutors of the church that you'll ever find. But I was on the road to Damascus. And when I was on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to me and I saw the light. And I want you to see it too. And I've tried to show it to you. And I reached a point where God told me to go show it to the Gentiles. Well, once he says, I'm showing our Jewish faith to the Gentiles, the crowd thinks, yep, he's basically just confessed to bring in the Gentiles into the temple. And they get all riled up again and they start to tear him apart again. At which point the tribune has no choice but to arrest his poor soul. And so I'm sure the newspaper read the next day that Paul was arrested. Paul was taken away. And the Tribune's got to figure out the story. Because the Tribune wasn't listening to the Aramaic. So the Tribune says, all right, we're going to have to torture this guy. He'd been watching 24 and he knew how Jack Bauer did these things. <laughs> and he's going to get the truth and he's going to get it fast. So they order Paul to be spread out. And they get what in Latin is called the flagellum. We get the word flagellate from it. The flagellum was the whip. The flagellum whip had pieces of metal and glass and bone in the leather tips. Many, many times people being tortured with the flagellum are killed in the process. Many who are not killed are at least maimed. This is not like the lashes Paul got in the synagogues earlier. 
not to minimize or trivialize the lashes, I'm sure they hurt. But this is deadly. This is someone, a big burly guy, taking a wooden handle that's got extended out from it, these strips of leather that have at the end basically heavy nails, glass, and bone. And with some guy who's stretched out and can do nothing about it, just taking it and whacking as hard as he can with each whack, digging out muscle, flesh, tissue. Paul, in that position, as he's stretched out, and they're getting ready to do it, says, you know, I'm a Roman citizen, and what you're doing is illegal. And the centurion says, what? And he says, uh, I'm a Roman citizen. You do this to me as a Roman citizen, the law says it's going to be done to you. Centurion says, hang on just a moment. <laughs> Goes over to the tribune, says, I just want it to be real clear. I'm not ordering flogging of the Roman citizen. You are, right? Tribune says, what Roman citizen? Says, that guy says he's a Roman citizen. Tribune's sitting there thinking, well, I'm not even allowed to tie up a Roman citizen to get ready to scourge him. This could be bad. So he goes over to talk to Paul. Says, uh, guy says, you're a Roman citizen. Paul says, yeah, I am. Says, uh, now you've got to figure Paul looks pretty badly whipped already. I mean, he's been mobbed, Okay. Guy looks at him and says, uh, well, they must be selling it pretty cheap if you came by it. But my day, when I bought my citizenship, it cost a pretty penny. Paul looks at him and says, I didn't buy mine. I was born to Roman citizens. I'm multi-generation. At which point the tribune says, oh, I don't know. But he's got a problem. What's he going to do with Brother Paul? Because he's got to do something or the whole city's going to be in a riot. But he's already tied him up, which is wrong. He clearly can't torture him. He says, I know what I'm going to do. He's a Jew. I'm going to call a meeting of the Sanhedrin tomorrow. Plan B. Let them judge Paul and let them pronounce his penalty. So Paul gets hauled the next day in front of the Sanhedrin. The chief priest is there, a fellow named Ananias. And somehow in the hubbub of it all, Ananias um, orders Paul to be slapped. And that violates actually Jewish law. Jewish law is like American law. You're innocent until proven guilty. So you're not allowed to punish someone until you've proven them guilty. Paul knows that. I'm not sure. Paul doesn't know that Ananias who ordered it is the high priest. Maybe Paul wasn't looking when the order came down. Maybe Paul's back was turned. Maybe Paul didn't associate it. Some people think that's a sign Paul didn't have good vision. Whatever it may be, we don't know. But we do know that uh, Paul responded to the high priest slap with something like, quote, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. I like Brother Paul. 
he shouldn't have said it. Paul is not our savior, by the way. He was not perfect. He needed the Lord. Acts does not paint Paul as perfect. Admirable, yes. Perfect, no. It's pointed out to Paul, how dare you insult the high priest, at which Paul point, point Paul says, I'm sorry, I didn't know he was a high priest. Okay? I'm not supposed to insult the high priest. I know the law. By the way, Paul was prophetic. Ananias, the high priest, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. About 10 years later, gets uh, assassinated by the Jewish people because of the way he was living and taking care of the Romans. So Paul apologizes, but still is prophetic. So after apologizing, Paul goes a different direction. Instead of Paul saying, hey, I've always lived righteous under the law, which was his first defense, the one that got him slapped. Paul says, you know, the real reason I'm being here is because of my belief in the resurrection as a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee. I'm the son of Pharisees. We go way back. Because Paul recognized that there was a theological discord between the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. I mean, and the, the Sadducees. Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. Pharisees do. So once Paul says that, all of a sudden the council gets into a big knockdown drag out. Half of them, the Pharisees, are saying, well, of course, there's a resurrection. We shouldn't be punishing the guy because of a religious belief. You know, maybe God did talk to him. Maybe Jesus was resurrected. Or the other half saying, no, there could never be a resurrection. You guys are idiots. And that devolves into the big debate among them. And at that point, Paul and the Roman Tribune and everybody else is just kind of like watching them go back and forth and fighting. Of course, Paul's getting drug into it, so the Tribune realizes this is no solution either. They're going to kill the man here, tear him apart. So Paul ta- or the Tribune takes Paul and just takes him back to the Roman barracks. At the Roman barracks that night, God comes to Paul. And God... The Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts, facts about me. I love that. Facts. These aren't opinions. These aren't dreams. These aren't hopeful thoughts. These aren't, ooh, maybe there's a Jesus. They're facts. Take courage. As you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. We'll pick up there next week. Points for home. You remember the rumors that we were talking about? The vicious rumors? They've all been told that you teach the Jews among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That's false. Paul never did anything of the sort. Paul did teach a distinction between moral law and ceremonial law. Every Christian understands that. There's not a Christian that I know of that believes after the death of Christ we should be doing animal sacrifices to atone for our sins. There is no reason to do that. Those animal sacrifices were merely a foreshadowing 
of the sacrifice of Christ. By foreshadowing, what do we mean? If someone opens the door and there's a bright light in the other room and, and it shines on that person that's about to walk through the door, their shadow would come in before them. And we might look at the shadow and say, hey, I think that's John. I think John's coming in the door. But once John comes in the door, I don't go up and hug his shadow. I go up and embrace and engage with John. Well, the Old Testament system of sacrificing for atonement of sins with the blood of animals, it was a foreshadowing. It was that shadow that we saw of the reality that was Jesus Christ. And to live in the shadow once the reality is here would be useless. But there's a difference between saying we don't see the ceremonial law as binding and saying we will ignore the moral code. The moral code has never been something to ignore. The reason, the reason God gives us a moral code is because we're made in His image. And we're made to walk in that morality. God is a moral God. And so God gives us a moral code that says, this is the way you walk if you are me. That's why when Jesus is on earth, he was perfect morally. In other words, Jesus walked perfectly. By that we mean Jesus morally walked the way God would walk. Well, of course he did. He was God. So when faced with circumstances and situations, he responded as God would. The moral code is that for us. It's never been something that gets us to heaven, but it's always been something that's for our own good. And so we live and strive to understand and apply it. That's the situation. That's what Paul taught. Paul distinguished salvation and holiness, but he never ignored either one. Point two. Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them. Paul participated in the Nazarite vow with the other Jews. Why? Because Paul practiced what he preached. This is the same Paul who in the last year or so had written to the Corinthians, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. In order to win Jews. I've, it's the hardest thing for some people to do. Because some people want to say, no, you become like me. So we can communicate. The key, one of the keys to communication. I, I teach communication seminars. And one of the most important parts of trying to communicate, whether you're a trial lawyer or a Sunday school teacher or one-on-one -on -one communicator, I'll bet you, though, I've never had the conversation with Lewis, this is something Lewis does when he's counseling or some of the other folks. One of the things you do is you try to put yourself in the shoes of who you're talking to. You try to think, okay, now what are they thinking right now and how are they responding? Because the best way to get someone to agree with you is not to grab them by the collar and pull them over to where you are and say, you will believe this or else. 
The best way is to go over to where they are and say, hey, let's walk over here. Let me show you why. And let's navigate this together. And so when you're communicating with someone, you're trying to get inside their brain and their thought system and their structures to try and help them maneuver to where they need to be. And Paul did that with his life. Paul recognized that there are times where I might be able to reach someone for God if I'm just willing to, to get where they are and help them out. I had a friend in high school who thought this meant that she was supposed to go clubbing all the time. No, I'm just there to help them find Jesus. Be careful. The heart is deceitful among all things. But you know what we're talking about here. Final point. The Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage. That brother Paul would be met by the Lord at a time of, I mean, how was your day today, Paul? Well, it's been a rough day. Let's see. I was falsely accused. I was mugged. I was shouted down. When I tried to provide an explanation of what was going on, the people threw dirt at me. I left that part out. By the way, in Houston, we'd probably be throwing clay mud instead. But they threw dirt there. You know, I was about to be scourged. I've, it, Paul had a really, really tough day. And he didn't go home to a family or friends who sat there and said, Hey, how was your day? Can I help? He went home to a Roman, stinky Roman soldier's barracks where he was under their thumb and watchful eye. But God appeared to him. And we don't know if it was a visual appearance or an appearance in his heart or mind. But he had no doubt the Lord was with him. And the Lord gave him the message he needed. Take courage. You're not going to die. I'm getting you to Rome, baby. Which we know is where Paul had been wanting to go for years. And I think it's wonderful when your hopes and your plans line up in parallel with God's. Even if it is a really tough day. And not quite the way you'd think you wanted to get there. We'll pick up on this next week. But would you pray with me for today? Lord, with um, devotion in our hearts. We come before you through the blood of Jesus Christ and in his name. Thanking you for being a God who cares about us. Who calls us out of the world into holiness, with love and care, with tenderness, and yet with roughness when needed. And Lord, we praise you as a God who, who meets us where we are and guides us to where we need to be. May we reflect that same tender love towards our friends and neighbors and family. Through Jesus Christ we pray, amen.